1: just Syria but most countries in the Middle East it's like start talking about how nice their shoes are and then all of a sudden you have like access to a cheap water filter for like half the price because they know someone like that's how it works (laughs) and um, this pleasant kind of complexity to life you have to acknowledge people you have say good morning you have to I don't know you just have to show up you have to ask questions you have to ask for help It's more like putting yourself out there and just being in touch with the world around you.
0: to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal Elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. We honour this in all the work that we do and carry this into our conversation today. You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show that explores the values and complexities of race, culture, and identity. I am Sharika Halaludin. On today's show, we're asking how can art be a part of moving towards not only personal healing but across cultures? More than that, how do you bring forward art practices that have almost been lost? and turn them into a means of expression and economic resistance. On today's episode, we are tracing themes of traditional craft making and resistance to imperialism, moving from Belmore, a suburb here in so-called Sydney, to the streets of Damascus in Syria. Today, you're gonna hear what it takes to craft an economy of resistance and of beauty. Ahead on the show, we'll be hearing from researcher and creative Mia Shuha, co-founder of Sook. Alongside her collaborator Romy Colgroth, they've begun working on a project that elevates the value and dignity of Syrian craft, collecting beauty in a time of crisis. explores the values of race, culture and identity. And today we're going to hear what it takes to preserve cultural knowledge amid erasure and upheaval. Through craft and alternative economies.
1: I grew up in a very Syrian Aleppian household. My grandparents left Syria in the late 60s and they were unable to return. They and they never really thought they could return for, like, financial reasons, political reasons. Earlier this week, I spoke to Mia Shuha.
0: Raised in Belmore here in so-called Sydney, she's now based in Damascus, Syria. Her journey of connecting to her roots in Syria led her to unearth the extreme limitations faced by local creatives and artisans resulting from siege, sanctions, economic crisis and post-war difficulties. Mia, alongside her collaborator Romy Kolgroth, has dreamed up Sook, a project that elevates artists working across traditional and modern crafts, providing income and opportunity in an otherwise closed and complicated Syrian economy. Working on the ground, Mia is part of reimagining life as a creative in Syria she's someone who has long been ambitious and stretched in lots of directions so our chat began with her life here in this continent and what it was like growing up in the Syrian diaspora
1: so they basically created a little Aleppo in the in the suburbs of Sydney in in I, it was like a time travel kind of thing every time i entered their home i was instantly i was in Aleppo the music the, the cooking, the humor, the whole like atmosphere was totally not Australian. <laughs> and then when I left their house, I was like, okay, I'm in Australia now. <laughs> and just, or like, even just I'm in Belmore now, like, and just having to, I don't know, it just felt like two different worlds all the time. Yeah. And I felt happiest when I was at their place in my, when I was a little kid and it always just stuck with me. Like, it always felt like something I wanted to keep in my life. And then um, they got sick and, you know, they passed away. And, you know, I just felt like I lost that connection. And I started doing more research on Syria and what version of Syria exists today, because their version is like a figment of the past. You know, they, they, uh, they were my age, basically, during the golden age of Syria in the 60s, you know, so I grew up with a very specific version of Syria as like the ideal and one that was they were always talking about harmony like harmony and uh, Jews and Muslims and Christians living together in peace and them having friends from every group and that being totally normal now it's like the Jewish population in Syria for example is so so little like even that the detail is a, is a huge contrast. But I also just ground myself with learning about the realities today and trying to like communicate that.
0: Mia grew up with a romantic view of a far-off homeland preserved through food and story. Honestly, even as someone who pays attention to the news, trying to be critical, this is a version of Syria that has not been something that I've learnt about. Western media has played a big part in painting Syria as a constantly devastated, war-torn country when the situation of protest and calls for reform are extremely complicated. I asked Mir about this political entanglement, and while we can't really cover the multi-dimensions of a civil war, she gave me some important context.
1: Fundamentally, Syrians who are still on the ground in Syria are being underrepresented and kind of dismissed from the whole discourse. If you think that a government is dictatorial, then why are you punishing the whole population if they are unable to affect change on the ground, like as a a populace? The West has imposed really strict sanctions on Syria, like Syrians on the ground still, either they've chosen to stay or they're unable to leave. They're unable to access like Swift, like international banking transactions. They're unable to access uh, PayPal, Google pay. The list goes on infinite. Like they're really closed off from the world. And it's, you know, at least 14 million people still here on the ground that are completely shut off from the world. And it's all like geopolitical. It's all political agenda and, yeah, I just feel like that's a huge injustice. And so I've chosen to to research and write about it in my PhD. But being on the ground, and I know the issues and the challenges, and I can talk about them. But I also kind of became obsessed with kind of creating some change, trying to find a solution or any kind of a model. And it's also on a personal level, like I have some relatives who have been suffering because of this and who have... Have, they've had to close their businesses because of third-party sanctions. They can't like, import and export like they used to just two or three years ago. So it's an ongoing kind of monster, this sanctions regime. And uh, of course, it's like post-war economic crisis, a war economy. It's not all sanctions, but that's a huge factor as well. And the isolation of the Syrian people is a huge under-acknowledged factor and everything.
0: Mir unpacked this complexity further by articulating how well-intended foreign aid can be, but can also act as their own imperial soft powers and be so disconnected from what's actually happening.
1: Foreign aid can be very politically driven here on the ground. It's incentivized. like if you want to create some kind of change, you focus money and resources on a certain thing, it doesn't actually go towards serving the people without an agenda. For example, in Aleppo, all of the UN workers live in a hotel, <laughs> like a gated, cut off from the world. <laughs> and it's it's like a famous thing. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like another world. It's kind of removed from society here, but still interferes with society if there's some specific uh, objective involved.
0: Mia has spent a lot of her life thinking through this. Not only as someone from the Syrian diaspora and her family being directly impacted by all of this, but also as someone who studies the world through political economy. Through her work, she's unpacked what different crises have impacted Syria and what gets misrepresented about the country she calls home.
1: The past 100 years has done a lot of damage just, you know, in terms of like economic influence, political influence and cultural, like it's just the list goes on. I studied political economy. That's my background. So I'm always placing things in that context. And I'm always hyper aware of this like global economic hegemonic model that is kind of being pushed onto developing states. And it's really hard for me to consider the world outside of that, like frame of thinking, it's so few people have actually studied political economy, that sometimes I just feel like an alien, and I'm seeing things in a completely different color. But that just helped understand the world. And so far, it's like, it's helped me with my research, it's helped me with understanding things on the ground. And yeah, it's it's important to consider that Politically now, Syria is placing all of their bets on like multi-polarity working out. And so for me, it's also interesting to watch that play out. Like when a country places all of its bets on this like emerging kind of power structure that challenges like global hegemony as we've known it for the past 50 years. A lot of people under acknowledge the importance of that political um, economic framework of thinking when they discuss Syria. And so a lot of that has to be factored into why the war broke out, tensions between other like uh, neighboring states that are more aligned with NATO and the US. That has to be factored in, but it's obviously not the only reason. I'm just like a proponent of the idea that the war in Syria was just way, way more nuanced that, than what was trade in the mainstream media for the past 10 years and that doesn't help anyone like looking at this war through that lens like a misrepresentation doesn't help anyone like like anyone on the ground or outside of the country even if if foreigners now are afraid of Syria that's a misrepresentation of what's actually here in Syria like there's a lot of things to be learned to be discovered complicated right Economic crisis, foreign intervention
0: and invasion, loss of family and of culture. Despite everything, Mia found herself on her way to living in Damascus. Guided by grief, love and curiosity, she spoke about what it was like to step through that portal and wanting to know more.
1: In 2016, like, uh, you know, Syria was in the news in like December, late 2016, because of the war, like I was hearing things on the news and I was like learning and hearing different things from people on the ground. And I just feel like, you know, the world perception of Syria during the war has never really been like um, completely transparent and unbiased. I just know that and like, you know, I'm not saying one side is more correct than the other. I'm just saying that there's just so much that's unsaid or suppressed, or certain voices elevated over others. So that was in the back of my mind throughout the war anyway. And knowing this is a foreign version of what I'm familiar to, this version of Syria on the news is not the version that I've experienced from my parents and my grandparents. But then it all just culminated when in, um, in 2016 in December, like the war in Aleppo ended, uh, the battles ended, And my grandmother, in the same period, she had a stroke and was in hospital. And so I was seeing all of this stuff on the news and feeling like it's a bit alien to me. And then watching my grandmother go through all of that, like, you know, going through recovery. Then two weeks later, she passed away. And I just felt like because they happened so similar, like in time, like in the same time period, and I basically lost my connection to Syria through her. I felt like it was time Mm -hmm. to kind of like step through the portal (laughs) and like actually understand what's going on in Syria. Like at the time that gave me the most meaning in life, this like contrast between what's happening in the news and what's happening in like discourse at university and what's happening in my personal life and my connection to like Homeland And I started doing more research about Syria and wanting to go there and wanting to see what was left of my grandparents there.
0: If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Race Matters. We're hearing a conversation with Mia Shuha, a researcher and creative now based in Damascus, Syria, working on the ground in her homeland, collaborating with artists to find a means of economic autonomy and connection amidst such a complicated political backdrop. That was Mia speaking through what led her to pick up her life and land in Damascus. And on the other side, you'll be hearing her speak to what it's been like to build her project Sook from the ground up, crafting through autonomy, resisting imperialism and finding magic and beauty.
2: الخشب تبعه شوونه no. لا ما اش شوونه هل في شيء يدوي شيء كذا بدي تمشي لي ايتم ايتم يعني انا بدي يعني احكي لك على آيتم واحد واحد عشان تقرو الديسكريبشن تبعهم بالهي اوكي okay. استنى خليني امشي لك <تصفيق> انا احسب تست 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 اوكي <تصفيق> okay. فاول واحد هو واحد اوكي ااا كي انا كلمت بداتي خشب زان كلهم كلهم هذا اللمبير الابيض الأبجورة تبعيته الاباجوره تبعته ليك م- اقل لك عنجد هي شو هي من بردايه غرفتي اللي هي ماشي من بردايه غرفتي وهدول ما بتعملوا هلا هي عنجد قديمه يعني من بيتي ببتومه بس قصيتها هي كثير طول قصيت هلقد منه وصبته بالعكس أنا بحب إنه تتحطي هذا الشيء لأن أنا كثير من المث، مثلاً هداك الأخضر، هداك التنورة عندي. ما كثير تطلع أزر. تجلس على. بحبه. بس خلص الريكوردين أحكي نعمل بقى إذا نعم فضل حب. إيه. على فديه ما ما عملوا الأزرقين. كله خشب زان، اللي ماشي تبعيته اسمه جوبلا. جوبلا. هيك اسمه. Yes. أوكي. بس. طيب. الإدهان شو؟ الإدهان كله أنا بلون كله بالأكريليك.
0: We've been hearing a conversation with Mia Shuha, who joined us from Damascus, Syria, sharing the work she's collaborating on to uplift Syrian artists to find global connection and resource. Here's more from Mia on what she calls the pleasant complexity of the everyday in Syria and why you have to have your hands in the dirt when working on anything in the region.
1: Syria, it's like acknowledged as not just Syria, but most countries in the Middle East. It's like, like everyone has like, you know, someone that they know that can access certain things and open certain doors. Cause it's like, sometimes you just bump into a human on the street, start talking about how nice their shoes are. And then all of a sudden you have like access to a cheap water filter for like half the price because they know someone like, that's how it works. (laughs) And, um, And I kind of like that because like in Sydney or most of the West nowadays, even in like Dubai, more like developed places, it's so like inhuman and like isolated. I don't know. It's like even some restaurants in Sydney, you can't pay. You have to order food and pay by card. You don't actually interact with a human. And for me, that contrast happens to be just in my personal life between my Australian side and my Syrian side. I don't know. I just feel like in Syria, it's more like, how can I explain it? This pleasant kind of complexity to life. You have to acknowledge people. You have to say good morning. You have to, I don't know, you just have to show up. Um, You have to ask questions. You have to ask for help. um, Sometimes it's very difficult to do things on your own. So it's more like putting yourself out there and just being in touch with the world around you. In
0: being able to understand this pleasant complexity, Mia was able to begin planning SUK, an online initiative for artists in a time of crisis. The premise of SUK is simple, but the work is far-reaching.
1: Sook is just like a very, very simple attempt at a solution, like to some very, very complex issue, basically. <laughs> There's so many creators here on the ground that, you know, are enjoying their craft. They have a medium and they have a dream. They have like talents and visions. They create their works and then there's no market to purchase them. (laughs) Like Syrians on the ground have to fight to like put food on the table. You know, the average wage is about like, you know, 13 to 15 US dollars in a month like the equivalent in Syrian lira now. So it's like a shocking, like shocking economic crisis. But Syria is just one of those countries where most of its wealth is in its history and its culture and its tradition. So it's like a shame for me to see people like embracing that, embracing their culture, tradition and their like creativity and falling flat on their face, unable to find buyers and unable to to make a living and it's it's something that I think is more tangible like you know it's finding a solution or helping a certain group in society it's just like there are people with items that they've created ready to sell that can't find a market
0: if you're listening to this and you're an artist maybe being able to sell your work isn't your desire but being able to make that choice in some contexts is a privilege For Mia and the artist she's in touch with, Syria poses a unique context where commodity and liberation are weirdly entwined.
1: Here's Mia. It's been important for me to um, have my background as a researcher and to have lived here on the ground because I've been able to just really authentically find brands and creatives and artisans that are operating here. Like I haven't had to contact them via DMs. It's kind of just matter of fact, you meet someone in a cafe or you meet uh, an artist at their own uh, art exhibition. So like that's part of the whole like tangible nature of life in Syria and the, the way that you have to have your hands in the dirt. You also have to like ask questions, find people, ask what their rationale is you know, those things are not really immediately apparent. So, like, the complex relationships and social fabric, it's been really, like, valuable for me to be here and to just be, like, um, like working through that and, like, unravelling that. I just feel like capitalism is such a beast. (laughs) Like, I just don't think it's possible to really, like, contest capitalism in a practical way, especially as an individual, (laughs) like... So I'm more interested in kind of utilizing the tools of capitalism for something good, like to create some kind of channel that's actually helpful for people. So I found that Syrians are done like so sick of charity and like support and being seen as these like victims and you know, they want something, you know, sexy and shiny and attractive. Like they want to have businesses and brands and, and, you know, engage with the world in that way. So it's more dignifying. It's more dignifying to create an online store and sell things, you know, um, with brands and with marketing. And (laughs) so, yeah, that for me is like the, yeah, like, the basic concept of like commodity and like liberation, (laughs) the context of like, you know, unilateral sanctions and economic crisis and post-war recovery. So it's a very specific, like contextual kind of project, but yeah, like um, those things are very important to consider all of the, you know, artisans and the creatives and the the people that we work with have a space to tell their story. And we ask them, we just say, hey, we want a collection. We, we like, if you're interested, we would, you know, work with you. And we just like, order a collection, and they have autonomy to create whatever they want, or to just give us items that haven't been sold. And then we market for them. And like, you know, organize like global movement on their behalf. So it's like, elevating them giving them a platform and then taking the pressure of logistics off of them well I never studied art but while I was studying political economy and like politics and history I was always volunteering at a local art gallery somewhere it was kind of just like a a distant kind of I don't know it just helped me kind of cope with life it was never something I studied which is probably for the best because I haven't been kind of Corrupted, like I haven't, I still appreciate art. It's not like work. So, and I'm not overly critical and I'm, I just kind of, kind of see what I want to see. Um, and then just coming to Syria, like there's just so much kind of, there's just so much like, um, source for creativity here, like creativity out of pain, out of suffering, out of shock you can't even imagine you know some people watch buildings next to them be destroyed and they're still in their building unharmed like how do you process that kind of shock and and trauma you know there's so much kind of potential to create great things here as a form of therapy and coping that it kind of naturally i i just fell into it here in syria yeah i just found that you know people create here But it's like it's not really incentivized. There's no reward for it or benefit to it except for kind of processing their own trauma and expressing their creativity and uh, perpetuating, like, you know, cultural practices and traditions. So and besides, like, before the war, Syrian items and Syrian, like, culture and craft was very valuable, very, like, expensive i have my grandparents bought damasian mosaic tables and had them shipped to australia so it's basically giving people like a reward for their creative efforts and their entrepreneurship as well as kind of giving syrian craft and culture a dignity again giving it like a worthy price like worthy value you know um Whereas in the current situation, it's like hard to make a living being a creator or an artisan and you're just closed off from the world. Like it's hard to, you know, have international transactions and to ship. Those conditions also made it really hard for me to
0: get so off the ground. The reality of a closed economy and Mia needing to work with people outside of the country led her to form a special connection with her collaborator and friend, Romy Colgroth playing with the reality of needing a cross-cultural connection and the clout to make moves in the art world.
1: I was kind of trying to make silk happen already for, you know, around six to nine months. I was trying to get this idea off the ground, but I was lacking in, like, social capital and cultural capital in, in Australia. Like, I don't have lawyer friends. I don't know if this is, like, viable And it just felt like I kept falling flat on my face. And then Romy has more experience in social research and working with NGOs. And she has family friends who have more know-how and experience. So she kind of worked on my behalf to check and to, yeah, to like sort out the logistics and administration of Sook because she loved the idea and we decided to just partner up and work together and make it happen it's this kind of project it's vital to have someone on the ground and someone outside of the country i couldn't have done this without romi she's been like you know completely vital for this project i just want to like thank her for <laughs> for putting up with me and for like falling in love with this idea like i have
0: What's all this like for artists on the ground? And even for Mia on a deeper personal level. Mia spoke to the alchemy or the magic of the connections with
1: artists. Suk has been really healing as well because it's helped me to kind of take those parts of myself, of myself that have been really like um, traumatic and difficult and turn them into something positive. So that's something that I'm all about, like taking our negatives and turning them into positives, taking like traumatic experiences and trying to kind of alchemize, you know, and take as much positive energy from them as possible. And so I felt like an outsider and I needed someone like Romy to kind of validate me, validate the idea because she's white, she's Australian, she has more like experience and history in Australia. So, I really grew through her and with her with this idea. And so, that's why I feel like this idea has been really healing for me. But I feel like this idea is actually me helping myself and saving myself more than anything, especially because I'm writing about so much traumatic stuff in my PhD. I need there to be something positive here, like, I need some good news. It's just um, it's really magical, it's like magical to see what like Syrian artists have to say. I don't know how you go about processing a huge like trauma like the war that's happened in Syria, but there are people here that try <laughs> and they they try to make sense of things, and for me, that's kind of like godlike. Taking chaos and making sense of it and turning it into some kind of order is like for me, that's like, you know, godlike or whatever creator-like so i really feel that i there are syrian artists who are like they focus on dreams they focus on like lack they they focus on like syrian resources and their invaluable wealth like uh, my good friend um dima kabani she creates art out of syrian cotton and all of her work is themed around the mother dna and cotton in syria so it's just like regeneration, like the kind of regeneration that, you know, crosses like centuries. It's just very personal. It's like she creates artworks that are made of cotton that just resemble human flesh. It's just really beautiful and like shocking and jarring. One of the artists, Rita, she, like of Rita's Gallery, she creates her like lamps and uh, items of furniture out of like old discarded fabric and like old discarded furniture, she like refurbishes them. And like, it's just taking things that have, that have history and that have lived. She finds them at like the souk in the old city. It's just full of magic, full of energy, turns them into something new and fresh. For me, that's all alchemy. It's just like layers and layers of like rejuvenation, recreation, and channeling negative energy to create something beautiful. We have five artists that we've worked with in our first collection, and um, they all come from different tiers of society, different backgrounds, all with this common theme of like trying to create in a very kind of destitute environment. It's just, it's really um, a huge feat and a huge effort to be creating things that are so, like, beautiful and meaningful in such a situation. It just, like, creatives in Syria deserve, like, respect and, you know, to be motivated, to be inspired, to be rewarded. And so that's basically what we're trying to achieve through Sook.
0: As you're hearing this, Sook is in the process of being put out into the world with their first collection, Yasmin, being launched. Sook also serves as a testament to the Syrian diaspora experience and possible avenues for connection and opportunity created in the homeland in a way that honours tradition, history, society and its social fabric. We're going to end with Mia sharing her hopes for
1: where this
0: project can go.
1: I just really want Sook to just be like an avenue to encourage creativity and appreciation for Syrian heritage and culture it's incentivizing people to continue creating to like maintain like crafts that have been passed down to them to see it as having value like you don't need to you know go and you know become a content creator and completely work with things that are intangible there's also value in tangible items and in appreciating your history and, uh, and your creativity on the ground as a Syrian. That's the thing. We work with, like, older artisans as well as, like, new and up-and-coming creatives. So I love that. I love that we're kind of, like, you know, merging together the old and the new and showing, like, innovation as well as appreciation for, like, the old world. I'm just really hoping that, like, we'll be able to expand and work with as many Um, artisans and creatives as possible in future
0: that is all for race matters this week I'm Sharika heller thank you to my guests for this week Mia Shuha for sharing so generously about her own journey towards Sukh and how it's beginning to unravel into something magic and healing A special thanks to her co-founder and friend Romy Colgroth for helping this story come together and for our endless long-distance WhatsApp texts. If you want to learn more about Sook, we've left all the details in our show notes and socials where you can also begin to start supporting their artists. If you want to listen to any episodes of Race Matters, you can head to fbiradio.com slash racematters.
2: صراحه لا هي كيف بتطلع القصة يعني كل ما شي بالشارع بصفط بشوف شغلتين قدام بعض فبيعجبوني اللونين بحس انه ازرق ولون شطيره ازرق فبقوم بصير بيخطر لي انه اذا عملت الازرق هون بس هذا الاسبيريشن تبع هات بالذات وبالقماش الوردي يلي هي تبع الكنبايه كنت ماشيه بالسوق ومو براسي انه بدي اشتري شيء عم حبيتها انا اشتريتها وقعدت عندي عندي عن جد ست شهور ما عملت فيها ولا شيء بعدين
0: بختار
1: لي اسمع من نفساتي هيك بس